Hey everybody, welcome to Dune class number six as we start book two tonight. Well, I'm, I'm confident we're going to start book two tonight, though I didn't quite get through all the questions I wanted to get through, so I, I want to start tonight by going back, as I said, to the uh, Princess Irulong question. But before we do that, I wanted to uh, uh, to make an announcement or maybe an appeal, perhaps. Um for those of you who are have been following uh, Mythgard stuff, you'll know that we have our third annual conference coming up, Mythmoot, which is happening in the second weekend of January in Baltimore. And uh, uh, for those of you who are following closely, we'll know that just a couple days ago we closed uh, submissions for paper presentations at MythMood. Um, and we have a, a, a really great set of papers. Uh, people, uh, we got some wonderful, wonderful submissions. Um, we're having a really hard time trying to sort everything out. But one thing that we noticed is that our, um, our paper uh, uh, proposals lean very heavily, not shockingly, towards fantasy. Uh, Neil Ottenstein, uh, who is here tonight and who has been a faithful attendee uh, at uh, the Mythgard Academy classes from the beginning, um, uh, uh, submitted a, an excellent paper um, on uh, on a science fiction topic. Neil, it was on it, it is on Dune, right? I only heard about it secondhand. I haven't seen it myself yet, uh, but uh, uh, but I heard it was really interesting. Um, it, it's it's it involves Dune, right? Yeah, the the foundation in Dune. You remember I was uh, uh, sort of challenging uh, several weeks back that uh, you know uh, somebody was making an observation about sort of wanting to compare and contrast Paul's prescient vision in Dune with. Um, uh, Harry Seldon's uh, 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 psychohistory in Foundation, and I was saying, hey, that sounds like a great paper. Well, so Neil has proposed uh, to write that. Erica Hansen is asking me, where's the why the Dune sequels don't suck paper? That's my question, too. So basically, here's, here's what I want to do. Um, we have plenty of paper proposals, but I would like to offer a sort of a, a brief exception or a brief extension to the deadline, um, directed especially to those of you who are who are attending this class and have been doing the Dune class. Not that they have to be Dune papers, but what we would love is we would love to be able to have a couple other papers that we could put together with uh, Neil's Foundation and Dune paper, uh, and um, uh, and so we could have a, a, a you know a panel, ideally a Dune panel or at least a science fiction panel. Um, that would be really cool. We can, we can, you know, we'll definitely find other things to put Neil's paper together with. But I would love to uh, to be able to have some others. So I just wanted to give you guys an open invitation um, to definitely think about. It. You don't have to have the paper written. You can just send an abstract, you know, of your topic. Um, so you can have still until January to actually write the paper. Um, but I wanted to invite you, challenge you to to do that. What it, well, of course, what it entails is it, it does mean that you have to be able to come. You have to be able to to be able to be with us at MythMoot in January again. Baltimore, uh, the weekend of January tenth um, is when it's going to be. Um, but uh, but if you can be with us and you want to write a paper, d d give it some thought and uh, send a proposal to events at mythgard.org, uh, and uh, we will ac we will accept for this special exception. Uh, for uh, for you guys uh, to uh, to submit uh, a further proposal, so I just wanted to give you guys that invitation, encouragement, uh, however you want to look at it. Um, but uh, anyway, I would uh, and and it, of course in general, I would just like to say that Mythmood has been awesome. Um, 
our vision for MythMoot is to to really to make a conference which is which our goal is to to bring in sort of the best elements of both fan conventions and scholarly conferences. Um, scholarly conferences are really great. You get to hear lots of wonderful, you know, sort of stimulating ideas and have great conversations, but they can be a little bit dull. And fan conventions are really cool, but they can sometimes be a little bit mindless. Um, so how to do both, you know, how to sort of bring both of those things together, to sort of have fun together as fans, but also to be, uh, you know, to be enjoying, you know, really stimulating talks and conversation and, uh, and you know, to just, to, you know, to really to sort of marry fandom and scholarship has been one of the goals of, of Mythgard from the very beginning, and it's been, uh, it's been a, a particular focus in our planning of Mythmoot. So I'm really excited about what we're going to be looking at with uh, Mythmoot this year, so I, I also just generally want to encourage you to come to Mythmoot. But think about papers now. We've had lots of uh, material here, plenty more to talk about. Um, as for instance, somebody could easily write a paper about Princess Irulan and the frame of Dune because I'm not going to have enough time uh, to really get into it. But let's get at least a little bit of a sample on this. So here, I put this up last time. Here is my the list of the titles of the works. Uh, you know, sort of partial list this is the list of that we get in book one. We can update it as we go along. Um, but this is the list of titles from Princess Irulan that we get in book one. Uh, and you'll remember the question I left you with last time that I said I wanted to come back to at the beginning, so you've had a week to think about this. What do we learn about Princess Irulan from the titles? Even, you know, we can learn some stuff from the text of her quotations as well. But even just from the list of titles, what are things that we get? What are things that we see? Lee Smith sent me an email in which she said, you know, that one op the observation that she made is she said that on the one hand, the works by Princess Irulan uh, suggest intimacy, that is, you know, close f familiarity with him. Um, there are lots of like, you know, I have heard him say this many times, and that that kind of this is not somebody who is merely a historian, right? You know, this is not somebody who's just done research on Wadib. This is obviously someone who knows him. So that there is a there is a there is a personal um, connection with Wadib there. Um, but she was also saying that it it, it suggest that her works and the titles of her works suggest um, actually at least a degree of actual partisanship. Uh, towards him that she sort of you know she's a believer you know that she that she buys into it um, and I think I mean I think that those are both defensible now rem remember I'm not asking about who Princess Irulan really is right we will meet her briefly at the very end of the book uh, and we will and you will know more about her if you've read the subsequent books but that's not what I'm looking for. Right. What I'm looking for is what we, because again, I'm trying to understand the role that these play in the experience of this book itself, in which, you know, at these at this stage in the book, we have no further information, right? Um, and yet we get this persistent voice. In in its way, it is the most persistent voice in the entire book, right? The continual repetition of Princess Irulan's voice um, that we get framing every single chapter. Uh, that happens, and which you know, so which not only sort of introduces and interacts, usually in, in really interesting ways, with the, the 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 subject matter of the chapter that's about to come, but of course also provides us a vantage point to look at the entire story 
uh, that we would not in any other way have. Um, it gives us a kind of prescient knowledge, right, of what is going to come, though it's not perfectly clear um, exactly what's going to come. Um, okay, good. So what are some other things? Uh, I, I'm going to go to your guys' uh, observations here. Um, uh, good. Michael Cheskovsky uh, says that there, you know, there are lots of references to family and father, so it's clearly a personal relationship. Yep, I agree. There's, there's, there's lots of uh, data there. Uh, Brandon says that she seems like a, a historian or anthropologist. That, that tone you know, is definitely there. And again, you look at some of the, some of the titles here. Uh, family Commentaries. That is a title, I think, that really, you know, or I should say, excuse me, Muad'Dib. Family commentaries, right? Um, that that seems, I think, to point to the two things that uh, that uh, that Lee, you were pointing to in your email, pretty well, right? On the one hand, there's this um, uh, there's a an intimacy there. Again, she wouldn't know so much, but again, it's also it also sounds Brandon like a historian who's done her research, right? She didn't know. Lido, presumably, right? She didn't know Jessica. Maybe she did, or maybe she will eventually get to know Jessica. But she certainly didn't know Lido personally, right? So she's she's been doing research into this, um, but also, you know, Mwadib, comma family commentaries. Um, this sort of shows us that he is not only going to become important, right? Obviously, we know Paul is going to become important, and we get the first glimpse of his own plan. Right, his own plan to, to, to aim for the throne, to aim for the imperial throne himself, he has revealed that, or perhaps come up with it, um, for the first time here in, in tonight's reading. But, um, but it's, not, it's not just that, right? The, the, sort of the quality of his position. Um, we see him as a person of obvious historical significance, right? The family commentaries sort of show that. Um, what else do we see about him? What else does this show us about uh, about 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 Paul, about Muad'Dib, as well? Um, Sarah says that Princess Irwan seems to want to perpetuate Muad'Dib's legend to many kinds of people: singers, philosophers, Bene Gesserit analysts, and children. Yes, yes, there is a um, I, Sarah. I would even go so far as to say. An element of indoctrination. This is especially true of a child's history of Muad'Dib, right? Um, this is not just like even children will be interested to hear the history of Muad'Dib. This is clearly in a book of indoctrination, right? Um, lessons that you as children can learn from from the story of Muad'Dib, uh, and things that you really should know and uh, believe about Muad'Dib. It's it's that I think it, it clearly crosses that line into indoctrination, um, and that's the one I would point to more than any other um, to support uh, Lee's argument for um, uh, for uh, partisanship on uh, on Irulan's part. Um, but uh, the the one thing with the the Bene Gesserits, though, Sarah, um, analysis the Arakine crisis. That's the really Bene Gesserit one, right? Um, and this is her speaking. Um, it's clear from the text of many of the quotations make reference to the fact that she herself, Princess Irulan, is a Bene Gesserit. Um, that might not happen in book one, but it definitely happens uh, in one of the uh, quotations for today's reading in the beginning of book two, um, when she refers to her father, the emperor, calling her a Bene Gesserit witch. Um, 
So, so again, so we know that she's a Bene Gesserit. That one book, uh, and we only get that one quotation from it in book one uh, that I recall, Analysis, The Arachene Crisis, that's one of the only ones that to me could serve as undermining the conclusion about her as a partisan. Because that the tone of that one is clearly both the tone, e even again the tone of the book title here, but certainly the tone of the, ex of the extract that we get, um, does seem to suggest a kind of dispassionate one Bene Gesserit writing to other Bene Gesserits, right? Disc you know, talking about this event, you know, them trying to come to understand the Arakeen crisis um, and her offering her analysis of it. Um, uh, okay, good, good. Um, yeah, Nancy uh, Fosberg is pointing to to the the very the many different genres that she wrote. Yes, yes, clearly, this gives us a glimpse into how all encompassing Paul Wadib's importance is going to be. Right, um, that all of you know that that he should that there should be all of these things, um, but but also I think um, it's. It also gives us a bunch of different glimpses, sort of directly into into Paul and indirectly into her. Um, that is to say, again, it's one thing to say that you have uh, you know somebody who rises to become emperor, and the way in which he does it is very remarkable, and his importance as emperor is very very great, and so therefore we're going to be telling stories. Uh, you know, we're, we're going to be writing things like family commentaries and a child's history and all that stuff. The fact that we have something called the collected sayings of Muad'Dib makes him sound uh, more like a prophet or a wise man, right, um, than simply a ruler. Um, uh, Patrick Summers says the titles almost have the ring of propaganda to them, the sorts of things you would read from the supporters of a great leader. Come and see Muad'Dib's varying wisdom. I agree, and Patrick, that's the one that strikes me most that way. Um, though I would say the manual of Muad'Dib, and again, you know, these are the you know, top two uh, quotation getters uh, in book one. The manual of, of Muad'Dib, Patrick, I think is sort of... <sighs> I find, I think, most interesting and um, uh, perhaps ominous, that is, manual. Manual in what sense? Because, of course, a manual is supposed to be something that sort of provides a set of instructions, right, which helps you understand how to do something. It's kind of what a manual is, right? So, I mean, maybe she's using manual in a different sense. Um, but there are two senses in which we could understand it in that way, I think. One is, he, here is a book to sort of tell you about who Muad'Dib is and how he works, right? Um, to help you understand Muad'Dib better. Um, but of course, another possible application to, of it is how you are to apply the lessons from Muad'Dib in your own life, right? How Muad'Dib's life is to be a manual for your life. Um, and that second one sounds a lot more like propaganda. Um, yeah, uh, uh, Jim has a has a really good point. Jim Hart says she comes across as a historian, yes, but specifically a house historian, uh, the royal family's official historian. Um, yes, like there's a party line uh, that she is uh, uh, that she is uh, walking there. Um, 
Yeah, I can see that. I mean, again, certainly, again, some of these titles certainly do sound like that. Um, another one that is uh, that is that is uh, really interesting. Oh, Patrick was just referring to it as well. The humanity of Muad'Dib. Patrick says um, that title jumped at me for the same things to see the great Muad'Dib's human side. Yeah, the fact that you'd have to title something like that, like you know, remember Muad'Dib has humanity. Um, again, certainly shows something pretty uh, remarkable uh, there. Um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Patrick is recalling uh, Leto's comments to his propaganda corps uh, and how they have uh, a really great one. Um, yes, yes. Um, Tom Hillman is suggesting that it it has the sound of her setting the re the record straight. And Tom specifies he's not saying she is setting the record straight, but that she thinks she's setting the record straight. Um, yeah, I mean, this is something that I think is going to be interesting to look at because I actually think it, it it's sort of a relatively complicated question. Um, in fact, hey, this would be a great paper topic, I can't help but think, to look at the the, the, the quotations from Princess Irulan and answer the question, what is the relationship between Irulan and her works with Muad'Dib and his accomplishments? Is she serving as propaganda? Is she acting as propagandist and historian and yet in doing so undermining him? Is she in fact genuinely a, 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 a true believer? Is she resistant at all? How do we know? How do we see that? And how does that affect us as we read? Um, again, this is the, the Princess Irulan is the, is, is, is the most consistent voice and she is the one who provides us this vantage point. We are well, we're not standing side by side with her. We're sitting and listening to her. She's always talking to us, right? You know, so we get these flashes where we keep going and we're, and we're hearing Princess Irulan give us context for the things that we're given. That context, therefore, necessarily is going to inform how we read what we read when we're actually uh, looking at the narrative. So thinking about the, you know, what conclusions we really can draw from uh, from the, from the text that were given from Princess Irulan about her relationship with Muad'Dib, and then thinking further about how that informs our reading. Oh, that's a great paper topic! I love that paper topic. Um, uh, let's uh, uh, let's 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 that yeah. So so events at Mythgard.org is where you should send abstracts uh, on paper topics such as that or others. Um, uh, Good, good. Um, yeah, uh, James Stevens is asking, is this just for Bene Gesserit eyes only? A great question. Analysis, er, the Erekine crisis, sounds that way to me, James. That sounds like an in-house Bene Gesserit document to me. Um, uh, the whole tone of that passage seems like that. Um, some of it can't be. Like a child's history of Muad'Dib can't possibly be published, you know, by, by a Bene Gesserit for the Bene Gesserits. Um, <clears throat> but again, we know what, how the Bene Gesserit operate, right? I mean, think of the Missionaria Protectiva, right? A and the way that they sort of plant these seeds to take advantage of stuff. Is she manipulate? Is she attempting to, to manipulate and control Muad'Dib and the legend by becoming its spokesperson? You know, the, there's a lot here. Um, uh, yeah, uh, Roy asks a great question. <clears throat> um, uh, Roy says, are we to understand that the italicized thoughts we get in the narrative are a part of her books? 
If so, how does she know the, the, those thoughts? And this is a great question in connection, uh, and, and I, I'm forgetting already who asked it, um, and, uh, but somebody asked this at the end of class last time, um, is one of the books that she wrote Dune, right? Because we're not told that, right? We're not told who's writing this book. Um, we're given a framework, but if we're going to be told, we haven't been told yet, where this narrative comes from. Now, normally, most commonly, certainly most commonly in modern books, in modern fiction, that's not a question we're usually encouraged to ask. Sometimes it is. Sometimes the 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 narrative of how the story that you're reading came to be written and came to be passed down and put into your hands is a part of the narrative. Uh, in my mind, one of the most extreme examples of this is Bram Stoker's Dracula, um, where throughout the narrative, you see people like waving around copies of the narrative that you are reading, right? You know, and and then we see them recording and typing out. You know, there's there's there's. Mina Harker faithfully typing away at the book that you are, in fact, reading, right? And Bram Stoker sets that up at the very beginning of the book by saying, you know, how these documents were set in order will be revealed. And, uh, you know, it, 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 so sometimes that is placed really prominently before our minds. But that's an older technique. Um, it was quite common in the early days of the novel, um, you know, with, uh, you know, novels like Robinson Crusoe and Pamela, which were always at, uh, you know, the two, the, the two first novels, um, which were you know, generally at pains to sort of describe how this was written out and, and why it was preserved and all that kind of stuff. Most modern books don't ask, don't invite us to ask that question. There's a kind of a tacit understanding between the author and us that we're not going to ask that question, usually. I mean, that seems to me to be um, a given in the majority of modern novels, but not always. And in, so normally, well, I wouldn't even be asking that question, or at least I wouldn't insist that that was a question that must have an answer. Sometimes you get, of course, modern works that do insist on it, such as Tolkien, of course. Tolkien um, is is pretty careful, and again, we have that business in the prologue about the, you know, the the, the history of the text and, you know, how how the manuscripts were passed down and and, uh, and and the ways in which they varied and the Red Book of Westmarch and all that stuff, right? So, um, so you know, Tolkien was certainly very interested in this question. There are other authors who do similar things, um, but again, I wouldn't assume it. The reason I do think it's a relevant question in this book, in fact, the reason why I think it becomes for me a question that's hard to avoid is the Princess Irulan stuff, right? If we didn't have that, um, if we did not have our attention drawn to the fact that this story that you are reading, that is the story of how Paul Atreides came to be Muad'Dib, um, it, we are being continually reminded that that narrative is the subject of all of these books, right? And, and we have, we even have identified the author of all of these. So we have this author figure um, who has in, chronicled in depth the rise of Paul Atreides to become Muad'Dib. Therefore, it seems a perfectly logical indeed, and to me, an almost inescapable question. So then where did this book, is this, are we reading one of the books of Princess Irulan? So Roy, first we have to ask that question. Then we can ask the, the subsequent question of, um, where is she getting all this? You know, how is she learning all these things? How is she figuring this stuff out? Um, and uh, 
<laughs> Sorry, I'm laughing because uh, Kevin Morgan, who has been attempting to erode my resistance to the sequels f since uh, the first class, uh, Kevin is, has 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 not given up, uh, and uh, he says, "I can tell I can tell you all about this if you want to talk about the sequels." Well, no, we certainly shan't talk about the sequels now, Kevin. Though I am interested to hear your hint about uh, uh, the fact that that uh, is going to be brought in later on. I'm I'm, I'm delighted to hear that. Um, but I shan't give in. Um, that's not to say, by the way, that I shan't ever give in and reread the other sequels. It's been several years since I've attempted them, and I may do so. Uh, I, 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 I'm feeling more and more that I, I should give it another go, even though my uh, I, I will confess that my expectations are still small. But anyway, I'm interested to hear that that question uh, comes up again. Um, anyway. Um, We'll come back to this. I think that there's a lot more here that we can see. I think that there will be more as we move forward. Continue to look at this question. Um, you know, pay attention to those things. If there's anything that really jumps out at you um, in any of those uh, snippets, you know, the the the, the chapter beginning extracts um, as we go along the way, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts about that. Um, we'll continue to come back and and uh, review this question. Um, uh, you know, I'll try to make this a running um, uh, a running feature uh, in our end of, uh, in our three end of book um, uh, bonus classes. Okay, um, one other, there were several questions that I had wanted to talk about and I'm going to sort of spread them out over the next few classes so as not to get irreparably behind, um, but I did want to talk about this one because this is one that, uh, this is an issue that's been raised by several people and so I wanted to address it. This is uh, uh, an email from Stephen Benedetti. Herbert's vocabulary choices draw on many real-world sources, inc including, most notably, Arabic. This is notable because in the 60s, this tradition was a lot more unknown to the English-speaking world than it has become since, certainly true. In my opinion, he chose this because the Arabs come from a desert-dwelling tradition. Therefore, these, those words and concepts help convey an authentic depth to the Dune experience. Additionally, there are the more familiar Greek, Roman, and general Christian references that also help to build this sense of depth. Do you think that Herbert was simply creating a fictional universe where Dune exists, or was he positing that the Dune universe is a continuation of our universe, sort of the, the complementary mythology to Tolkien's attempt at creating a, prehist a prehistory of England? And do you think this question matters in any way? Uh, I, I, I love that end uh, uh, to the to the question. Um, I would say, and again, I'm not I'm not speaking with the authority of a master of the Dune universe, but just from the evidence we have in this book, it certainly seems that this that we are to understand that Dune is a continuation uh, of our universe, and I agree with Kevin's quick response that it that it that it does matter. Um, a couple comments I would make about na about uh, names and naming, and about in particular the whole uh, sort of Arab uh, and Islam element uh, in the Fremen. One thing uh, first is I do think that it's a continuation, and I do think that that does matter. The reason I believe that it matters, or, or what seems to me to, to 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 matter about that in this book, um, is that it is invite the the story does I think invite us to have a particular relationship to it. Um, that is to imagine that this is the distant future of our universe, um, and I think the ways in which we are permitted 
to recognize, you know, we, we, he gives us glimpses of stuff that do sound familiar, things which have survived, whether they be uh, names uh, uh, or, but, or even, to me, most significantly, the thing which would have convinced me more than anything else, um, all by itself, that this world was a continuation of our world's history, um, is the O.C. Bible. Um, the fact that so many of those quotations, not all, by any stretch, um, but so many of those quotations are word for word or nearly word for word um, out, of, out, of, uh, out of the Judeo-Christian Bible. Um, basically, the only way in which that would happen in a book which was not attempting to maintain any continuity with our world would be, you know, really simple, like basically if like Herbert was just kind of hoping that we wouldn't recognize them, I don't think he's hoping we wouldn't recognize them, I think he's banking on the fact that we will recognize them, so um, so to me they, they, they certainly have that, um, they certainly have that quality, they are a sort of an anchor of the familiar, now there's the foreign in there at the same time, right, um, uh, you know the orange Catholic Bible, um, in what sense is it orange, I don't know, um, that word, in fact, even that phrase by itself is to me a really interesting um, sort of synecdoche for this whole world-building thing. Um, the Orange Catholic Bible is two-thirds familiar, right? Catholic Bible, those two words go together and they make perfect sense. Um, orange, in what sense Orange. Orange is itself a familiar word, but combined with Catholic Bible doesn't make that much sense to me. Um, uh, but, um, I mean, I'm not saying that we that can't mean that a couple of people are suggesting uh, 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 connections. Um, <laughs> first of all, Michael's saying it's like the Red Book of Westmarch, except orange. Um, yeah, yeah, um, uh, 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 to both Kevin's, Kevin Morgan and Kevin Hensler are suggesting that, you know, orange <clears throat> associating with Protestant, um, you know, uh, so to sort of combining the sort of the Protestant and Catholic uh, Bible, possibly, but I'm unconvinced. That is, it may well have, you know, that, uh, that, that sort of hint or overtone may indeed be there. Uh, I'm not, not sort of wanting to make an argument against that exactly. But what I would defend is the foreignness of it. Um, I think if you translate it simply as like, okay, Orange Catholic Bible means Protestant Catholic Bible, that I think is wrong. That's, that strikes me as wrong. Um, it's supposed to be foreign. It's not the same. Some of the quotations are not from the Bible, either Protestant or Catholic. Um, so, and again, it's why you know why uh, why 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 should we? Um, but uh, that is you know why, why should we make that association? Um, but um, anyway, uh, uh, some people. Uh, l let me explain briefly. Some people are sort of confused on why orange should be associated with uh, with Protestantism. Um, uh, there's there's there's. Uh, uh, you know, Kevin Morgan was pointing to uh, uh, William of Orange, and we got the Scots Presbyterians, we got the Dutch thing. Um, there, it's there, there's I, 
there's ground to stand on there, I think. I mean, I, it's, I'm not saying it's a totally indefensible argument. Um, but what I am saying is, I think, you know, again, as I said, I think that phrase, the Orange Catholic Bible, to me is, is, is almost a perfect encapsulation of the way that Dune world building works. It provides us enough that's familiar or sort of superficially familiar um, that we don't need all that much explanation. Um, we have, you know, the, some of the elements that are brought together, some of the, those familiar elements are brought together and combined in unusual ways, um, sometimes with words that we don't understand, right? You know, uh, but, uh, um, but still, nevertheless, there's, there's uh, you know, we have sort of a place to stand, uh, you know, and to, to conceptually we have some associations with things. Um, it's familiar enough to be, to be, you know, to to have a connection, but I don't think we are supposed to be translating. This brings me to my um, to my bigger point, which is that I don't think we can simply be identifying. Um, do I, th you know? Are the connections between the Fremen and uh, the either the Arabs in particular, or or Muslims and Islam in general? Um, uh, do, do I think that that's coincidental? No, I don't think that's coincidental. It's pretty clear that he is uh, that he has is is borrowing that vocabulary um, to use for the Fremen. And I agree um, with Stephen and a couple others have made this point too um, that you know it's. It's pretty obvious that that whole um, that vocabulary would have seemed more strange. Um, would not have just it, it, it definitely strikes us differently now than it would have uh, uh, than it would have struck people uh, in the '60s. But um, I think that if we take those things and just say, "Okay, the Fremen are Arabs." Or the Fremen are Muslims, or both. I think that we're totally missing the point. Um, the Fremen are not Arabs any more than the Orange Catholic Bible is the Bible. It's not. It's connected to it. It's similar to it. The Fremen, their you know their language, many of their concepts are things which are which are which are Arab, but they're not Arabs, and their religion is not like Islam. Um, even the the terms, you know, when they use terms which are, uh, you know, Islamic terms, such as jihad, it's not that word is not being used in the same way that uh, that the word jihad is used in Islam. Um, uh, and anyway, so I don't, um, uh, Michael, just Michael Chevskowski, uh, who's uh, Michael, and I apologize for always stuttering over your last name, um, uh, points out that jihad was also applied to the Butlerian jihad. Um, yes, yes. Um, anyway, it's... I am not at all convinced that... Not only am I not convinced, but I think I would take a heck of a lot of convincing that Frank Herbert is simply just attempting to you know, basically do a very thinly veiled allegory of, you know, the, of, of Arabs or of Muslims um, in the Fremen. I don't think at all that that's how it works. It doesn't seem to be how the entire world works. Um, 
there, as with other places, we get vocabulary which has survived, has survived in some sense, is still being applied in some ways that are kind of similar. We do get a desert people who are, um, you know, who use the language and vocabulary of, you know, a contemporary desert people. And so that does give, as Stephen points out in his email, a kind of consistency. Um, but, um, but again, I, I, it, it, I think the minute you try to simply say he's making a commentary on Arabs or Muslims, or you know, again, that this is just kind of an allegory for like the Middle East, I think it's um, uh, it's it's not. Even uh, you know, J uh, uh, James Stevens points to uh, the Mahdi, which of course is uh, is a, a very prominent figure in Islam um, and Islamic prophecies. You know, it's it's in a sense the 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 Islamic Messiah, though that word has a very different sense in Islam than it does in Christianity or Judaism. But nevertheless, yeah, that, that, that's a thing, right? I mean, the Mahdi is in fact a, 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 an apocalyptic figure in Islam. But the Islamic traditions about the Mahdi are not the same as, the, as how they talk about the Mahdi uh, uh, in, in the book as regards Paul. Um, Anyway, I just uh, you know, Michael says the concepts are often universal. He's just using the Arabic terminology, um, and I agree. I, I think that that's um, uh, I, 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 that's definitely how uh, how how I read it. Um, uh, anyway, um, yeah, good, good. Um, Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Uh, Kevin says there are pretty uncanny, at least potential parallels between Wadib and Muhammad, even the name, uh, and the easy choice uh, of rapid expansion uh, out of the desert, uh, ostensibly to conquer much of the civilized universe. Totally, absolutely, yeah. Again, I'm not arguing that those parallels exist. He's clearly established those parallels, and I don't think he's chosen it. I mean, I think that Stephen's point about uh, um, uh, about uh, you know choosing this because the Arabs come from a desert-dwelling tradition, and so therefore uh, you know conveying an authentic depth that strikes me as 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 very plausible. I don't at all think that it's only that, right? He has chosen the vocabulary uh, of Islam because many of those elements, um, many of those concepts, things like jihad and the Mahdi, um, and uh, and you know the, the, because those parallels are there, he's developing those parallels, but they're they're, they're, they're parallels, and the, again, I, you know, in part, this is me, um, this is me, f I'm not following in the footsteps of, but trying to heed the lesson uh, of Tolkien and Tolkien's resistance to allegory. Um, Tolkien says he cordially dislikes allegory. I think he exaggerated that a little bit. Um, I certainly don't dislike allegory cordially uh, at all, or cordially or at all. I love allegory. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm delighted by allegory. Um, I enjoy it in almost all of its manifestations. But um, the process of the way in the... the um, there's a kind of 
The danger in allegory is in allegorical readings, that is, in the desire to allegorize something. Um, there is a kind of ruthlessness in allegorization, which I think is really inimical to the process of careful reading. Um, and let, me, let me put it this way. Anytime you approach a work of literature and you are setting out to find a particular thing, let me let me take it in its in its most um, let me give three sort of examples. One is when you approach a work of literature in and you're persistently asking one particular question. You see this sometimes, for instance, in literary critics who have one particular hobby horse that they ride all the time, right? Maybe it's race relations, maybe it's gender relations, or, you know, uh, and maybe it's sexual orientation. Those are, those are all three very popular uh, in uh, uh, academia right now. Uh, and I'm not saying that any one of those is in, or those are invalid questions to ask or invalid interests to have, but if every question, if every text you read, you are focusing sort of solely, you're reading it through the lens of that particular question, which is a, a phrase that such critics sometimes use. Um, I can't help but think that you're very unlikely to come away with, you know, you're sort of investing yourself in a pretty subjective view of the text. That is, you're not really interested in what the story is doing, you're only interested in what it has to say to you on the one question that you ask. Um, again, not that you can't ever learn anything interesting when you do that, but you're certainly not likely to come away with any kind of broad um, or, I think, deep understanding of what actually is going on in that story. Um, a slightly more uh, uh, extreme version of the same thing is somebody who doesn't just come to a text asking persistently one particular question and really only interested in the answer to that one question, but rather somebody who comes uh, hoping to get a particular answer from a text. Then you begin positively ignoring things that the text is saying, and really you're just you're you're doing you're doing your own thing. There's very um, uh, what you're doing is like fan fiction, but less on, less honest. Um, the most extreme version of this is that drive to allegorize when you are sort of actively uninterested in the story as a story itself. When you're just trying to sort of solve it, what's the real thing? What's actually going on here, right? I want to see if I can get at the behind the scenes. So I, I, I detect something like, okay, there are these Arabic elements here. All right, this is a commentary about, like, you know, the Arabs in the Middle East or about Islam or whatever, right? You know, you choose your thing. Um, it, that's no different from the people who, who uh, you know, read The Lord of the Rings and say, you know, oh, you know, okay, right, it's World War II and the atomic bomb. Um, you can do a perfectly convincing allegorical reading. There is no limitation on that. Um, that is, there is no, and I was just reading um, uh, for the Lewis and Tolkien class that I'm teaching at Mythgard, um, we were just reading some of C.S. Lewis's critical essays in which he, sort of, uh, in one of them on criticism, he states this very emphatically, um, there is no, no story that anyone can write that cannot be allegorized by somebody else in a really convincing way. Um, 
people are ingenious allegorizers in their readings. Um, there's nothing that you can say that can't be made into a particular meaning by somebody who is choosing to do an, an allegorical reading of your text. Um, but in doing that, again, the tendency is to completely shut yourself off from what the text is actually doing. The entire process of allegorizing something is more radically even than the previous two examples I gave to subordinate what the actual story is to that meaning that you're trying to drag out of it. That thing that you're kind of latching onto and you know that the and, 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 and you're gonna ignore the rest of the story itself. Um, anyway, I uh, um, I am very, very wary of that kind of approach. Um, before I read something as an allegory, I'm gonna need a lot clearer that is before I start myself doing an allegorical interpretation of something, which as I said, I love, love allegory, um, as a as a as a writer's mode. That is, I really enjoy allegories which are written as allegories. Um, but that's almost never done. Um, and the thing that most modern people call allegory, again, it's not allegory. Chronicles of Narnia, for instance, not an allegory, not at all an allegory. Um, modern modern people tend to call any kind of symbolism allegory. It's not. It's totally different. Not totally different, but it's very different. Um, someone who is writing an allegory is intending you to have a very different relationship with the story and its characters than somebody who is writing a work which is symbolic of other things, right? Yes, we're supposed to be thinking of the crucifixion of Christ when we see Aslan uh, sacrificed on the stone table. That does not mean that the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is an allegory of the, of the Gospel. It isn't an allegory. Um, not in the same way that works like the Romance of the Rose, the, the, the 13th century French poem, is an allegory. That's an allegory. Pilgrim's Progress is an allegory. Um, and again, I'm going to need to be really, really convinced. Um, uh, Philip Lord asks, Animal Farm. No, no, Animal Farm is not an allegory. It's a beast fable. It's, it's similar to an allegory, but it's not an allegory. Um, because you can't say... Uh, you have to be able to use, confidently to use, an equals sign when you have an allegory. Okay? And that's what allegories always do. That's, again, this is the danger of, of allegorical readings. That is, you have to be able to say that character equals this thing, right? You'll be able to point concretely to what that thing, you know, that, that thing is, is, is only a representation, you know, a sort of a, a, a fictional representation of either a concept or a person or something like that, right? The characters in Animal Farm um, map onto, you know, certain tendencies or certain outlooks and everything, but it's not a rigid allegory in that way. Again, it's a beast fable, which is a similar genre but it's not exactly the same. Um, anyway, uh, I'm, I'm, now, uh, uh, I'm now moving far afield. But this is a, this is a, this is a, I think this is a really important theoretical question. Um, and again, you know, believe me, I'm not trying to, like, say, pay no attention to, like, the parallels to, you know, to Arabs and to Islam. 
it's clear that we're supposed to be doing that. Um, even though, you know, these terms were not as familiar in the 60s as they are now, again, it's not like he was exactly, you know, choosing something deeply obscure. Uh, I mean, it was something that was much less commonly known in the American populace, but, uh, but again, it's not like it was cunningly hidden, right? Um, he's just taking the vocabulary straight through. Um, but um, anyway, um, no, Kevin, I think, again, you're, I, I think you're not understanding. Um, Animal Farm isn't a I don't think that Animal Farm is a direct allegory. Um, uh, I, 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 again, it's it's applicable, but it's not a direct allegory. Um, it, it, that were again, it's and, and and I say this only because, as a medievalist, which is where my training lies. Um, the medievals loved allegory. We did a lot of allegory in the Middle Ages. People, modern people don't do allegories anymore. Um, there are very few people who have written honest-to-God allegories in the 20th or 21st century. Um, I can think of very, very few examples of what I would really call an allegory. Um, one, again, I have Lewis and Tolkien on the brain because I'm also teaching that class this term. C.S. Lewis wrote an honest-to-God allegory, not the Chronicles of Narnia, um, but uh, uh, the Pilgrim's Regress, which is an honest-to-God allegory, um, which is modeled on Pilgrim's Progress, which is also an honest-to-God allegory. Um, is Gulliver tra Gulliver's Travels an allegory? No, it's not an allegory. It has It's a story which contains, at times, allegorical elements, um, but, it, uh, uh, but it is not... Uh, it is not uh, you, know, you know, there are some... No, see, even even in places, yeah, yeah, no, I mean, it's, 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 no, no, it's, it's, it's not an allegory, he's illustrating things, we'll see, both Brandon Young and Kevin Hensworth said, Leaf by Niggle, yes, Leaf by Niggle is the closest thing to an actual allegory that Tolkien wrote, um, and there are certainly very actively allegorical elements, it's, not perfectly allegorical. Um, it, it's a little bit of a hybrid, but it is. It is. It, there are elements of serious allegory uh, in in uh, in in *Leaf by Niggle*. Um, uh, Roy says the medieval de a medieval definition of allegory might not be the best way to judge modern works. I see what you mean. What I'm insisting on, though, is some kind of a distinction. Um, that is to say the way that I find modern people using the word allegory is simply sloppy because it's one that, that, that covers over distinctions. There is a difference between an allegory like every man and a work which is, merely, which, is, which is merely an applicable fable or which tries to illustrate certain, again, or which is symbolic, um, which, is, which is making symbolic connections. Symbolism and allegory are similar, but they're not the same. And maintaining that distinction, I think, is, is, is important um, because calling symbolism allegory or calling a beast fable an allegory. Beast fables can conceivably be allegories, um, but they are, they are not all allegories. Um, is to, to do that is to misunderstand what the text is doing. It encourages really muddy thinking. Again, and, and, I, say, and I say this affectionately, um, 
I have very little affection for people who talk about the Lord of the Rings as an allegory of World War II. I have very great affection for most of the people who say that the, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is an allegory of the Gospel. Um, I think I kind of agree with what most of the people I've heard say that are trying to say when they say that. But I think that the, their own thinking about what's going on in the story um, tends to get muddied by their misapplication of that particular term and invites a lot of misunderstanding uh, in the claims that they're making. Um, with, so this is why I, I am um, <laughs> touchy and likely to go into like a half-hour rant about allegory um, because I, I think that it's, it is... Uh, you ha again, you have a very different relationship as a reader with an allegory. You're given a kind of license when you're reading something which is allegorical. Um, when you're reading Everyman, when you're reading The Romance of the Rose, when you're reading Pilgrim's Progress. Um, Pilgrim's Progress, a book in which uh, you meet a character who says, my name is Honest and I hope I am. Right? You're given a license to have a particular relationship with it, to do a particular kind of interpretation with that text. You're not only given a license, you are, you are, you are uh, uh, given a, a mandate to do particular kinds of interpretation on that text. To do that um, same thing with a text where you don't, you haven't been given that warrant um, and you've not even been given that invitation is, I think, to be in very great risk of at, at the very least being confused, um, at the worst uh, totally misunderstanding what is going on in a story. Um, but um, anyway, uh, and again, when I say the Chronicles of, of Narnia are not an allegory, I don't at all mean that the symbolism is accidental or that we're not supposed to be thinking about Jesus when we with Aslan. No, but again, it's... Eh, well, we'll talk about this more in detail. If someday we do a book of the Chronicles of Narnia and the Mythgard Academy, we'll talk about this a lot more. I don't want to, get, I don't want to go too far down that road. Um, but again, the point is, I'm not at all questioning that. All I'm saying is, it isn't an allegory. You can't say... Uh, you can't say the white witch equals Satan. She's like Satan in some ways, but she isn't Satan. She's not the same. Uh, Peter equals who? Uh, Lucy equals who? Mr. Beaver equals who? It's not an allegory. Those characters can't, you can't put equal signs next to those characters. And if you start doing that, you, you start doing crazy stuff um, pretty quickly because the story doesn't work that way. Therefore, you're in the presence of a different kind of story. Therefore, don't do it. Therefore, don't go there. Don't start, don't start writing equal signs. When, uh, and they got, that's, that's all I'm saying. That's all I'm saying. Um, it does create... Uh, it, it, it does kind of start to put you in a bit of a mess when you do that. And again, I, I, I mean great sympathy um, with a lot of the people who are talking about Narnia that way, for instance. But in the end, it gets to be kind of uh, uh, muddy thinking. Um, Kevin says, can I think of a film example of true allegory? No. <laughs> I can't. Because film is a modern genre, uh, and modern people suck at allegory, and most of them don't like it. Um, 
uh, I mean, <laughs> Roy says that would be horrible. Um, uh, maybe. I mean, allegory was adapted very persistently to the stage. I mean, of you know, every man in morality plays. I mean, one of the two major theatrical genres of the Middle Ages was were, was a you know persistently allegorical drama. Um, Many elements of which, by the way, uh, uh, people always underestimate the amount of that stuff that you still see in Shakespeare. Uh, but anyhow, never mind. Totally a, a, a thing for the other time. Um, no, I can't think of one. Um, not one that I would consider a rigorous allegory. But I'm not an expert in this. Um, uh, <laughs> Ed, I know allegory is not used in the strict sense in modern usage. That is my complaint. That is precisely what I am ranting about. I am saying that in order for that word to be at all useful in, a literary, in, in literary analysis, it needs to have a meaning which is different from which is, in fact, specific at all. People tend to use the word allegory, and they say it's an allegory. I've heard people say that's allegorical, meaning nothing other than it has some kind of meaning or significance. Like, it's not just frivolous pop culture. Um, clearly, the word if the word allegory is to be at all useful, it must mean more than that. Um, and even to... And, and I think that it is, it, is, it is very useful, it is very fruitful um, to specify, to draw a different... Cause it, for, for the sake of our own thinking and, and understanding what we're doing when we're talking about a story. We need to be, we need to be uh, aware of the terms that we use. Um, if what we mean is there are sim there's symbolism here, then we should say that. And that's different from saying that it's an allegory. Um, those two words can, can mean different things. So I, I'm not denying the fact that... Uh, um, I'm not denying the fact that modern people use that word in a different sense. Um, what I am saying is that the way that modern people use that word is nonsensical. And in fact, not only useless, but worse than useless. Um, because the word has become empty and doesn't really have any consistent meaning. Um, and, and so, if the word is to be continued, if the word is to be used, I just ask that it means something. Um, Tom Hillman says, like irony, yes. Um, and isn't it useful to have the word irony? to talk about that thing, which is irony. Um, and so, yes, if you want to protest about the degradation of, uh, of, the, of the adjective ironic uh, as applied to things that are merely coincidence and uh, various other things that Alanis Morissette may or may not be interested in, um, uh, wasn't it her who wrote that awful song, which I've tried to block out and so might even not be remembering correctly who wrote that song? Um, but anyway, yeah, there, that is... Yeah, yeah, that was her good. That's what I thought. Um, Anyway, uh, yes, uh, it's 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 still useful for terms to, to 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 retain some kind of some kind of significance. And I know that I'm I know that I'm spitting against the wind here, um, but I do think um, uh, I do think that there it's the way that it's used just just creates confusion, um, and uh, it's it's. Uh, when it comes to actually discussing stories, it becomes an, act, an, an active obstacle.
Um, anyway. Um, okay. I have an idea. Let's talk about book two. Um, few things. So I want to start with a few sort of scattered things. And some of the primary purpose that I have for talking about a few of these first passages is I just uh, trying to get at, not because I think, you know, necessarily that this scene has, you know, deep importance for the unfolding of the story. One of the things that I've, I've been finding myself doing as I've been reading Dune this time is trying to be able to put my finger more precisely on the things that make this story so good. Um, you know, I keep saying, and you know, I said at the beginning, how brilliant I think this story is, and 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 uh, uh, you know how masterful I think um, you know Frank Herbert's touch in this book is. But I don't want to just be satisfied with vagueness, you know, and saying this book is awesome. Trust me. I want to be able to try to point to what is good about it, what makes it good, what what is it that he does that is good, and how does it work? Um, so, uh, so th there there are a few things that I want to do. I've been sort of noticing these things uh, as I've been going through this last time, um, and I just have a couple of them here at the beginning of today uh, of, of this that I of, you know our book two discussion that I wanted to point to. Um, Howat said. You haven't yet told me whether your people can help my wounded. He's speaking to that random Fremen right before he gets captured, of course. They are wounded. The same damned answer every time. We know they're wounded, How Hawat snapped. That's not the peace friend, the Fremen cautioned. What do your wounded say? Are there those among them who can see the water need of your tribe? We haven't talked about water, Hawat said. We, I can understand your reluctance, the Fremen said. They are your friends, your tribesmen. Do you have water? Not enough. The Fremen gestured to Howat's tunic, the skin exposed beneath it. You were caught in siege without your suits. You must make a water decision, friend. Can we hire your help? The Fremen shrugged. You have no water. He glanced at the group behind Howat. How many of your wounded would you spend? Um, this is the... Uh, um, this is the... The passage right after this that Howat says, like his mentat senses detected that their that they were not their their communication was out of phase, and I was like, you think? <laughs> like, God, you picked up on that. You are pretty sharp, after all. Um, what uh, uh, what I really love about this, place, as Sean Hyde says, this passage leaves you yelling at Howat, figure it out. Come on. Um, uh, yes, yes. Uh, Michael, of course, is pointing out uh, how how it is not particularly well controlled or unemotional here. Um, no, no. But one of the things that I find so brilliant about this passage is by showing us Thufir Hawat and the Fremen speaking at cross purposes like this. Um, this is such a fascinating and delicate way that Herbert chooses to. Um, sort of provide us with this kind of immersion into Fremen culture, or at least this glimpse, this brief immersion um, into, into Fremen culture. Um, we are, if we just overheard Fremen talking among themselves, it might sound alien to us and we might just simply might not get it. Um, but I think, Sean, I agree with you. I am always like impatient with Thufir in this scene. Like, come on, man, how dumb are you? Don't you understand what he's saying? Um, 
of course, easy enough for me to say in retrospect, I've read the book before, but um, but I do think that the, there there certainly there is that element. The fact that he, he even draws our attention to it really explicitly, as I said, almost immediately after this passage, it's a really great way to bring us to sort of seeing things from the Fremen point of view, right? Um, he has, you know, basically sort of Thufir is our is our our our, um, our, our stand-in for ignorance, right? Um, and uh, yeah, Chris Stevens says he brings us along with Hawat as it dawns on us what the Fremen is saying. Um, yeah, 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 exactly. Um, <laughs> Nancy thinks it's funny that I'm talking about immersion uh, when talking about Dune. It does seem a it does seem a funny word. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, good. Susan Minger says, just overhearing the Fremen, we might not realize that their assumptions are so vastly different. Yes, um, exactly. Um, if we just heard them talking about, like, like take for instance the 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 the, the question, do you have water? Right, um, or that um, you know. The, first, he says, "Do you have water?" And then later on, says, "You have no water." It's pretty clear in context, in the context provided by Howitt's conversation and his own failure to understand. It's pretty clear that he means different things by that. Right? Um, yeah, uh, what? Water means, and the the not not only okay. It's water is very important. We've already gotten that, you know, about Arrakis. But what are the different kinds of significance that it has? Um, that question, do you have water? Um, is he's asking a lot by asking that, and he's implying a lot. On the one hand, you see, Thufir takes it as simply like, do you have enough water to drink? Right? Are you are are you going to die of thirst soon? Uh, is what he, is what he clearly is how how it clearly interprets his question, but there's clearly more to his question than that, as is made abundantly clear when how it asks, "Can we hire your help?" and the Fremen responds, "You have no water." Um, again, one could say, "Well, yeah, that's why we want to hire your help because we need water, right?" Um, but but again, the the number of things that we see, right? Um, can we hire your? You have no water. Uh, they don't even realize that, of course, like, that would be how they hire their help, right? Why are we talking about hiring help when you have no water? Um, but but the, but there's also more to it than that, right? That that by itself is only a, a partial understanding of the significance of what he means when he says, um, when he says, you have no water. Um, but... Um, yeah, so just the way in which he uses this conversation to help bring us inside the Fremen mindset and the way that it's placed here, um, you know, before we get Paul and Jessica meeting the Fremen and coming into the Fremen culture, you know, this sort of glimpse that we get into it is, is, is just really, really well done. And the way that he draws attention to these multiple meanings without explaining them. Right, um, he still leaves them to be suggestive. You know, we are still sort of left to just kind of contemplate, kind of meditate on the sentence "you have no water" and what that implies. And so it, it's he does such a great job throughout this book of doing more, provoking our interest, um, and stimulating our own imaginations than he does in laying things out for us. Uh, and I, th I, I think this is this passage is a really wonderful illustration of that. Um, 
another fun moment. Jessica's dream. But there had been a dream in this day's sleep, and she shivered at the memory of it. She had held dreaming hands beneath Sandflow, where a name had been written, Duke Leto Atreides. The name had blurred with the sand, and she had moved to restore it, but the first letter filled before the last was begun. The sand would not stop. Her dream became wailing, louder and louder, that ridiculous wailing. Part of her mind had realized the sound was her own voice as a tiny child, little more than a baby. A woman not quite visible to memory was going away. My unknown mother, Jessica thought, the Bene Gesserit who bore me and gave me to the sisters because that's what she was commanded to do. Was she glad to rid herself of a Harkonnen child? Um, this is another thing that I love about Dune, these moments that we get, which are so rich in their suggestiveness, and yet he doesn't give us an interpretation. What does this mean? Um, again, we're provoked to think think about it ourselves, right? We're, 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 we're provoked to sort of make connections on our own, but he doesn't, he doesn't beat us with it. Um, what do you think? What do you think? Of course, yeah, when I say what do you think, what's the significance of this? What connections would you establish between this passage and other things in the book? What do we do with this passage, given you know what we've read and what, what we've seen? What do we see going on here? Okay, we see, as Neil says, we see you know, the planet wiping the duke away, yes, the, the, the flow of sand, right? Um, we see Arrakis wiping out Duke Leto Atreides, um, the way that the planet was his death, and so his name is being obscured by the sand. That does seem to be a relevant way to interpret that. Of course, there's also the more, the more general, I think, especially with the... Uh, you know, her trying to restore his name, but the, the, the letters filling as the sand goes on, and the sand would not, especially that paragraph, the sand would not stop. Um, I can't help but think of, um, uh, think of, of hourglasses and time, right? Um, uh, but, uh, but we also have good Nancy says, I think it was like one whose name, name is written in, 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 uh, in sand. Um, yes, yes. Um, uh, good, good. Um, Kevin po Kevin Walker points out how we get the combination of both thinking about Duke Leto and Duke Leto's passing, his fading, even his name being obscured. And again, what is it about his name being obscured? It's more than just his death, right? His death is obviously involved, but there's also a sense of the memory of Duke Leto Atreides, right? Is Duke Leto Atreides going to be... She's trying to restore his name, but the sand keeps filling up his name, right? And the sand wouldn't stop. Is this a question not just of his death and his memory being retained by her, his sort of wife, um, but is this also his legacy in some sense, that his tradition is, you know, is, is, is the name of Duke Leto Atreides in fact going to be lost and obscured by the sand of Arrakis in some sense, thinking about the, you know, the observations we were making about the, the black and green flag of Atreides and what it could come to stand for and all that stuff, right? Um, uh, uh, yeah, all of, all, you know, there lots of things that we can see going on there. And then, but again, going back to what Kevin Walker was saying, the 
the, the way that this dream brings together all of these questions and concerns about Duke Leto with the memory of her mother, which of course also invites us to think about her, right? We've got the woman, you know, her barely remembered mother and herself as a small girl child, right? Ridiculously wailing. Um, and she, of course, is pregnant with her own girl child. Um, and uh, the question about was she glad to rid herself of a Harkonnen child? Is this one thing that Jessica herself is thinking, right? Realizing that she is bearing a Harkonnen child because she is a Harkonnen herself. Um, uh, you know, lots of um, lots of lots of possibilities there. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> Nancy says he's not forgotten because Princess Irwan re re remembers him, right? Exactly. Yeah. If you forget uh, Duke Leto Atreides, just read Muad'Dib family commentaries, and then you're all good, right? Right. Unless that is unless in books like that his name is obscured by the sand of Arrakis perhaps uh, in a different sense um, and of course we can't forget the fact that the fact that all this is happening in a dream should be reminding us of Paul's dreams which were the subject of conversation way back in chapter one of the book right and which were clearly the beginnings of his prescient vision even though that word wasn't used back then um, still nevertheless he knew that he was seeing the future and that those things were going to be um, so this isn't a future dream in the same sense. It's not that she's seeing, you know, a scene from the future exactly. And of course the second one is explicitly from the past. But again, we have that context for dreams and dreaming in this story, which invite us to sort of uh, interpret the dream as not simply reflecting necessarily her own internal psychology, right? That is, we're not just Dr. Freud interpreting her dreams. Um, we've been led to understand by this book that dreams have an external significance as well, uh, and not merely an internal significance. Um, yeah, good. Peter Ribsky says, it's not just Duke Leto, it's her entire past that's being obscured or erased by Arrakis. Um, yes, with the death of the Duke and the passing of all of those things. Um, yeah, it is connected with her herself. And again, I think, Peter, we can see that symbolically, right, in her her trying to restore and trace the name. Um, yeah, and the Reverend Mother's predictions, Philip Lord says, yes, for the father, nothing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but again, the bigger point that I try to make in pointing out this passage is, see how much there is here? This is what I love about this book. This is the reason why I really love Dune, is Dune is one of those books for which, which is just packed with moments like this, which are so richly suggestive, moments that I could go on talking and talking and talking about for a long time and not feel that I've exhausted all of the different suggestions that are being made um, in these passages and the connections that are being invited. So much we could go on to say. And this is just one small example and not even one which is centrally involved in like the large, you know, if uh, sort of the career of, of Paul becoming Wadib and eventually becoming who, who he's, you know, who Princess Irohan is going to be writing about, um, if that is the primary arc of the narrative, things like this are secondary, right? They're just side stuff here. And yet even these small side things are so richly suggestive. I just, uh, um, I find 
things like this totally irresistible. Speaking of which, you'll remember one such passage that I pointed to before, and that was that note which Duke Leto received just before he was um, betrayed by uh, Yui, right? When he's slipped that anonymous note by the Fremen at the door, um, which contains the biblical um, uh, uh, quotation about the pillar of fire, uh, the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night, right? Uh, and we were talking about what that could mean and what's going on there. Philip Lord uh, noticed the reference to that. Yeah, good. I was wondering if anybody would catch that. Um, I'd never caught it before. <clears throat> An orange glare burst above the silhouette, and a line of brilliant purple cut downward toward the glare. This is, of course, the Harkonnens uh, quartering the land with their laser guns to try to catch them. Another line of purple, and another upthrusting orange glare. It was like an ancient naval battle, remembered shellfire, and the sight held them staring. Pillars of fire, Paul whispered. A ring of red eyes lifted over the distant rock. Lines of purple laced the sky. So, does this help us understand that note? Is the note actually a prophecy, <laughs> right? Uh, what do we do with this? Um, the laser guns of the Harkonnens are the pillars of fire? which are like the... <laughs> Nancy's pointing out, hey, look, there's orange. Agreed. Yeah, yeah, um, exactly. Um, Michael asked, did Paul know about the note? No, Paul couldn't have known about the note. Duke Leto had gotten it and then went to his death. Um, no, no. Um, uh, and Philip asks, where's the smoke, the pillar of... I don't know, I don't know. Um, but... Um, in regards to this, well, Philip Menzies is making a, a point which looks forward to the next reading, which normally I don't do, but in this case, Philip, I'll make an exception because I'm not sure we're going to go back to talking about the Pillars of Fire again next time. But Philip is reminding us that, of course, uh, uh, Paul's name is also going to be Usul, which means the base of the pillar. Interesting. Um, uh, so, yeah, well, let's sort of hang on to that. I, 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 I don't give you this passage in, in, in saying, see, this makes everything clear. Um, but again, even that one very tantalizing, um, and I felt at the time largely inexplicable, Fremen note that we get, which comes in at such a significant... I mean, that's it sets the scene for, you know, the great turn of book one, you know, for the climax of book one, the betrayal uh, and the battle to come. Uh, and and yet its meaning was completely dark. At least I felt it was completely dark to me. Um, exactly how did it relate? What was the Fremen trying to say? What's going on there? Now here we get another reference to the Pillars of Fire. Um, and, of course, it's especially conspicuous because, of course, remember the Pillar of Cloud and the Pillar of Fire is the divine guidance that the people, that the Israelites got in guiding them through the desert. Right, um, as they were escaping during the Exodus, as they were escaping from the Egyptians, and this is all, of course, this is you know, uh, pillars of fire. Paul, who is Muad'Dib, the one who points the way, uh, you know. So again, all of this stuff is uh, um, is is seems to be connected, 
but I don't yet fully understand uh, how that all works. So let's just you know keep hanging on to this. We'll you know possibly come back to it. Um, but anyway, again, just another example of one of those things that I think is really um, uh, is, is another moment <clears throat> that really makes me happy uh, as a reader of stories here. Um, okay. Um, Oh, and Sharon is sort of wondering about how we're supposed to actually understand the orange and the purple here. I think the upthrusting orange glares are the artillery, like the 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 actual projectile artillery that the Harkonnen. I think it's all Harkonnen weaponry. Um, I don't think what we're seeing is necessarily the fight. You know, a fight between the Fremen and the Harkonnens. I think the orange is the artillery that the Harkonnens are using, and the purple are the laser guns that the Harkonnens are using. Um, um, so I think it's just sort of the the two different um, and you know con color contrasting here um, you know weapons of destruction that the Harkonnens are using to wipe out the Atreides. That's what Paul is reflecting on when he's looking out at the scene um, that you know they're hunting down the last of the Atreides and trying to stamp them all out. So anyway, that's at least that's how I understand um, that uh, that that passage. Uh, one more. This one is a little bit different because this is sort of picking up on um, a theme that we discussed at length before and we'll discuss at length again and we're not going to discuss at length tonight um, but I, I didn't want to miss this reference entirely. This is in the conversation between Paul and Kynes. Paul stared at him. Presently Paul said, you have a legend of the Lizan al-Gaib here, the voice from the outer world, the one who will lead the Fremen to paradise. Your men have superstition, kind said. Perhaps, Paul agreed. Yet perhaps not. Superstitions sometimes have strange roots and stranger branchings. Um, and you remember that was precisely what we were seeing. And we know from the extent to which the narrator showed us the inside of Kynes's head in earlier chapters, we know that Kynes is not being honest here. Um, that he himself is very far from dismissing the legends of the Lizan al-Gaib as mere superstitions. He wants to, he believes that he should, but we saw him in, the, in those earlier chapters uh, coming to believe that there might in fact be, um, be substance to those, that he couldn't really deny them. Um, Philip Lord is talking about Kynes as being the man of science and faith. Yes, he, he, he serves two masters. Right, that's what, Liet serves two masters. Um, that's what we learn. He is Kynes and he is also Liet. He is, you know, um, the, the the way that, you know, Liet is called, you know, kind of, Paul thinks of Liet as Kynes' Fremen alter ego, right? We see um, him be of the Imperium and of the desert. Um, you know, Kynes is very much a divided figure in that way. Um, and here he's trying to sort of make as if he's not, but what Paul says is exactly what we were seeing, I think, in our, those earlier passages. Superstitions sometimes have strange roots and stranger beginnings. It may well be superstition, right? Um, and in fact, he knows, as he you know, said to Jessica, he knows that specifically these superstitions are superstitions that were planted by the Bene Gesserits, right? Um, by, the, by the Missionaria Protectiva. So are they... Superstition? Oh, heck yeah! In fact, they're 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 choreographed superstition, right? Um, you know, they're prescripted superstition, but um, they are 
superstition, which might have strange roots and have stranger branchings, right? Um, it doesn't change the fact that where that comes from might not be where you expect, uh, and where it goes, where it ends up going, also might be even less like you expect. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, good. Okay. Um, by the way, I, my subtitle, by the way, is sort of a bad pun, but I'm, um, but I'm uh, even there. As with so many things in Dune, I find there to be so many such tantalizing connections. You know, I, the fact that the, the the name, one of the names anyway, that Paul is called uh, by the Fremen, the Lizanad Gaib, means the voice from the outer world, um, and you know. I can't help but remember the scene at the beginning of the book where the Reverend Mother says to Jessica, he must learn to use the voice, right? You must train him in the use of the voice. And now he's, you know, uh, and we have their escape from their Harkonnen captors pivoting upon Paul's successful use of the voice against the Harkonnens, and now we have, now he's he is called the voice from the outer world. It, it's not the same, right? It doesn't, you know, it's not that that means the same thing by any means, but um, but again, we have with this as with so many things in this book, these same words, these similar concepts being brought into connection. And, you know, for us to be invited to think about that, um, the Bene Gesserit voice and the sense in which Paul is the Lisan al-Gaib to the Fremen is kind of like the Missionaria Protectiva on the one hand and the, you know, sort of the myths and legends about the Mahdi and the Reverend Mother that uh, that that the Fremen believe. Okay, yeah, there are connections there, right? But it's not certainly not a simple connection. Um, anyhow, um, let's look a little bit more at Paul and Paul's prescient vision and how we see it unfolding more. Spent a lot of time looking at that, of course, at the end of book one, um, and so I want to uh, take a little bit of time to look at how that unfolds here in the beginning of book two. Uh, this is uh, Paul talking to Duncan Idaho, or he's just been talking to Duncan. Sire, Paul thought. The word had such a strange sound when directed at him. Sire had always been his father. He felt himself touched briefly by his powers of prescience, seeing himself infected by the wild race consciousness that was moving the human universe toward chaos. The vision left him shaken, and he allowed Idaho to guide him along the edge of the basin to a rock projection. Fremen there were opening a way down, in, down into the sand with their compaction tools. Okay, um, notice again, and this is the second time that the terrible purpose, as it was called for the majority of book one, that Paul has been sensing, the second time that that terrible purpose is being explicitly identified with this wild race consciousness that he only has thought of in those terms since their, that last chapter at the end of book one. Um, remember when that phrase, race consciousness, was first used, um, was first used there in book one, he said that race consciousness which he had thought of as his terrible purpose. So again, those two things are explicitly identified. Here, that identification is sort of recapitulated in the repetition of the word infected, right? He again, he felt himself touched briefly by his powers of prescience, seeing himself infected 
by the wild race consciousness that was moving the human universe toward chaos. Remember, it was he was infected with terrible purpose back at the beginning, right after the Gom Jabbar. Right? So it was the Bene Gesserit's Gom Jabbar that first gave him that experience, that perception of being infected with terrible purpose. And now we see a repetition of that um, more precisely identified by the by the race consciousness uh, or with the the race consciousness um, but now also being connected in a different context right which again in my mind invites me to sort of take the Gom Jabbar on the one hand and this title of sire these are the two things right which um, lead to that you know which sort of lead him into thinking about seeing himself infected uh, by this thing. How are those things related? How is his role as Duke, as his father's heir, perhaps even just being treated as sire, right? Being, you know, being called, being treated as a lord. Um, you know, how does this, uh, uh, you know, how are these things connected? Remember his um, barb, which might perhaps have been an insight um, when he was first talking with the Reverend Mother about the Kwisatz Haderach, saying, um, uh, you know, what is the Kwisatz Haderach? Uh, you know, a human Gom Jabbar. Um, you know, there's still, there's still that sort of floating out there, too. Um, but the race consciousness. Um, this statement, and you know, Nancy Fosberg is pointing this out, um, this this uh, statement is pretty interesting, isn't it? Infected by the wild race consciousness that was moving the human universe toward chaos. We're told what the race consciousness is doing. It's a consciousness, right? This is not. He's not talking about like the destiny of the race in some sort of abstract eugenic way, right? Um, he's talking about the race consciousness. It's a thing. It's it's an awareness in some sense. Um, and it's doing something. It has a purpose. And the purpose is toward moving it toward chaos. Maybe it's not the ultimate purpose. Maybe that's the means, not the end. But um, uh, it's, um, it is, as Philip Lord says, both active and deliberate. Yes, yes. Um, Roy says it's infecting him, uh, and it's also wild, like an animal. Good, we've got both the infection and the wild. I think those are both important words there uh, in helping us understand that. Um, the infection shows his own passivity that is in the sense of his being a victim of it, right? Um, uh, you know, you don't... Uh, there's not really a question of your um, being complicit with a disease, you know? Um, it's something that happens to you. Um, uh, you know, so in what sense is Paul infected? That, again, with the, rep with the repetition of that word, it really uh, draws our attention to that. So, they, and it's clearly something for us to continue to think about, but I really wanted to draw attention to um, the, the shift in terminology that we've gotten. We're, we've now been brought closer to kind of understanding what's going on there. Remember, again, back in book one, we had these times of, of the, a very vague sense of something happening to Paul or something doing something to Paul, but we didn't know what it was, right? Um, um, but as if there were a concrete thing 
right, some other entity that was doing something to him, not just something that he was doing in his own mind. Um, and, uh, and again, we see that language being used much more concretely now. Um, uh, there are a bunch of moments. Um, you know, th there were some... There's at least one moment in the beginning of book two here where I thought that um, um, uh, Herbert did the did the Demi Dickens again, where he really sort of hammered on the fact like this is a symbolic moment, and I'm thinking in particular of the connection between the storm and the litany against fear, um, uh, which didn't start that way, but then when he comes back to it in the beginning of the, the second chapter, when you know, or the, the second storm chapter, when they're coming out of the storm, um, and uh, he, he he makes a really explicit reference to the fact like it's just like the litany. Um, and I'm like, okay, thank you, thank you. Yeah, I, I, I got it. I was totally with you. Um, you know, kind of like the, kind of like the bull and the and the matador. But, um, but there are lots of places where he doesn't do that, where he doesn't hammer on it. Um, but yet, the things that are going on in Paul's mind, the things that you know, those images that we got, that you know, that looking at Paul's awareness opening up at the end of book one. Um, really, you know, we see sort of echoes and resonance of that, um, and there becomes so much of this book which gains an additional level of significance beyond what the characters themselves understand, right? Um, here's a couple examples of what I'm talking about. They're running away from uh, the uh, the imperial, you know, the the, the the base, Kynes' base, um, and uh, you know Idaho has just died, and they're they're running away down the hallway towards that thopter that Kynes directed them towards. He followed her across the first arrow, seeing it go black as they touched it. Another arrow beckoned ahead. They crossed it, saw it extinguish itself, saw another arrow ahead. They were running now. Plans within plans within plans within plans. Jessica thought, "Have we become part of someone else's plan now?" Jessica, by the way, often plays this role of saying things that she herself does not comprehend the scope of at the time uh, during this uh, during this section. And this is a scene. This is you know, it's just part of the action, right? They're 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 following their escape route that Kinds directed them to. But I can't look at this passage the same way as I would if I hadn't had that scene at the end of book one. Right, and those images of Paul standing at the nexus of all paths and seeing these paths stretch out before, and then to see Paul running down a hallway with glowing arrows, and then when he crosses the arrow, it goes out. Right, you once you've chosen a path, you can't unchoose that path. Right, you've committed yourself. Paul was standing at the nexus of all of these myriad paths. Now, he's taking a path. Um, and that that sense of the arrow, and again, that image of the you know the arrows in the darkness, which are extinguished as they cross them, would already itself be a really rich symbol for what we see going on with Paul and his Prussian vision and this purpose that has been placed upon him um, by this terrible purpose with which he's been infected uh, by the race by the race consciousness. But then we get Jessica's. You know, she's not thinking of the race consciousness, right? She's not thinking of, of prescient visions of the future. <clears throat> she's just thinking about 
you know the Harkonnens and Kynes and uh, the Emperor and what's you know and 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 them and their desire to escape and to link up with the Fremen, but are they betraying them and what's going on and you know she's thinking of those things right and yet that question have we become part of someone else's plan now um, means so much more than she understands it means right <clears throat> are they in fact you know Paul feels that he's being swept along and he doesn't think he can resist the that terrible purpose but he wants to resist it we saw that at the end of book one right no surely I can't choose that path he says in that ritually ironic statement right I can't choose meaning I really 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 don't want to choose that surely I am not going to choose that and yet <clears throat> how much choice does he have and in voicing that protest he's suggesting that in fact he's worried that he's not going to have that choice um, anyway um, yeah Kevin Morgan says she's just waking up to the fact that they've always been in someone else's plan yeah as a Bene Gesserit she's used to being like the one who knows what's really you know their frame is the their, their grid is the the real background grid right everybody else's grids are just little subgrids contained within and manipulated by the Bene Gesserit grid um, she's saying that that's not really true um, Roy says it's interesting that he uh, uh, that he followed her across the first era right he's not you know again it's that the, the symbol is not one of him choosing but of him being conveyed along by his Bene Gesserit mom anyway yeah so I, I, again there's so many ways in which we could we can we could we could unpack this um, but again I there are just moments like this which really just sort of stand that which really just leap up um, and invite you to, to, to sort of pause over them and think about them more um, here a little bit later is Paul reflecting explicitly on this thing which was already has already been suggested to us uh, within that particular symbol Paul nodded fighting an abrupt reluctance to move he knew its cause but found no help in the knowledge somewhere this night he had passed a decision nexus into the deep unknown he knew the time area surrounding them but the here and now existed as a place of mystery it was as though he had seen himself from a distance go out of sight down into a valley of the countless paths up out of that valley some might carry a Paul Atreides back into sight but many would not um, he feels that he has passed a, a decision nexus yeah kinda like you've been barreling down a hallway with arrows pointing in the direction and going out behind you right um, but he doesn't know where he is he doesn't know what's gonna happen he doesn't know the way out of the valley that he's in um, and I love again the suggestiveness of some might carry Apollo Atreides back into sight yes and of those that don't carry Apollo Atreides back into sight many of those which do not carry Polytrades are ones in which he dies but many of them also are ones in which perhaps carry something other right exactly as Roy says they might carry a Muad'Dib out instead exactly exactly um, so yeah one of the many one of the many possibilities and again we're kind of given a glimpse of his own glimpses of the many possibilities um, without really sort of spelling them out here's the uh, symbolic bit before he hammers on it in the following chapter um, this is them riding in the thopter in the storm slowly her long years of training prevailed calmness returned we have the tiger by the tail Paul whispered we can't go down can't land and I don't think I can lift us out of this we'll have to ride it out 
calmness drained out of her. Jessica felt her teeth chattering, clamped them together. Then she heard Paul's voice, low and controlled, reciting the litany. Fear is the mind-killer. Fear is the little death that brings total obliteration. I will face my fear. I will permit it to pass over me and through me. And when it has gone past me, I will turn to see fear's path. Where the fear has gone, there will be nothing. Only I will remain. Okay, so we have three things brought together here, right? They are riding the storm, so they're engulfed in this sandstorm, which, you know, nobody could possibly survive in, as uh, the Baron clearly believes. We have Paul's metaphor of catching a tiger by the tail, right? Um, can't hold on, can't let go, right? <clears throat> um, having a tiger by the tail is in a difficult position. Michael Cheskowski points out that a sandstorm is kind of like a pillar of cloud. Wait for it, wait for it. We're getting there, we're getting there. Um, okay, so we've got Paul's metaphor for the storm that they're riding, right? Um, and then we have that itself, you know, their response to it, both of them respond to it by reciting the Bene Gesserit litany against fear. The fact that we get the litany against fear written out in full, though it's not done in exactly the same words as we got it way back at the beginning um, when Paul recited it to himself. Uh, I, I think that was in chapter one, wasn't it? It was either one or three, but I think it was one. It'd be easier to remember that if they were numbered. But anyway, um, uh, <laughs> a little continual frustration. Um, but anyhow, um, we've gotten the litany against fear here. And so on the one hand, again, it's a, it's a very, you know, they're afraid because they're in a storm, and so they're they are confronting their fear by reciting the litany. But of course, um, the litany is establishes this bigger metaphorical structure, right? The storm that they are in is like fear itself. Um, you know, that they are permitting the storm to pass over them and through them, right? That's the, They're riding the storm. They are trying themselves to remain tranquil in the middle of the storm as it whips around them, hoping that when it has gone past uh, where the fear has gone, there will be nothing, only they will remain. Um, I think that the way in which the litany, again, repeated in full, draws our attention to that as sort of a metaphor of what that is. It's just, I think it's just really elegantly done. Um, and that by itself would be really, really cool. But but there's more. There's more to come. There's more that he does with it um, later on. So let's, uh, uh, let's see if we can get there. This is the beginning of their next chapter when uh, they break out of the storm. The vortex began as an abrupt billowing that rattled the entire ship. Paul defied all fear to bank the thopter left. Jessica saw the maneuver on the attitude globe. Paul, she screamed. The vortex turned them, twisting, tipping. It lifted the thopter like a chip on a geyser, spewed them up and out. A winged speck with a, within a core of winding dust, lighted by the second moon. Pillar of cloud, right? Right, Michael? Pillar of cloud, right there. Sorry. Paul looked down, saw the dust-defined pillar of hot wind that had disgorged them, saw the dying storm trailing away like a dry river into the desert, moon-gray motion growing smaller and smaller below as they rode the updraft. We're out of it, Jessica whispered. By the way, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm embarrassed to admit this. I didn't even notice that. 
Like, not only did I not notice it before when I'd read it, I didn't notice it this time when I'd read it. Not only did I not notice it this time when I'd read it, I didn't even notice it when I was typing that passage before class. Um, how about that? Pillar of Cloud. There it is. There it is. Um, anyhow. Uh, but more, right? Again, that's not, it's not just a pillar of cloud. Um, this, 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 this metaphor, right, of them emerging from the cloud, so they're helplessly in the, in the, in the, in the storm, and then they get, they escape, but how do they escape? By being thrust up like a chip on a geyser, right? A winged speck within a core of winding dust. Um, they are thrown up and ejected. Um, it is like the litany. It's also like the way that Paul described the relationship between him and the race consciousness, right? There's the, you know, that sense of him being carried along on this tide that he can't resist. Um, but notice he made the choice, right? He made the so he's helpless to resist this vortex once it grabs them and spews them out. But he chose to go there, right? You know, this was his way of escaping the storm. So you have him being subject to these forces that he can't possibly control, and yet him choosing to manipulate those forces in order to save himself from his from his fate. Right. Anyway, um, again, just an, another moment really richly suggestive in thinking about, you know, inviting us to continue thinking about and putting together all of these things. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. More. We're still not done with the storm and the litany against fear. The sensation was magnetic and terrifying, and he found himself caught on the question of what caused this trembling awareness. He's talking about his, his uh, Russian awareness here. Part of it, he felt, was the spice-saturated diet of Arrakis, but he thought part of it could be the litany, as though the words had a power of their own. I shall not fear. Cause and effect. He was alive despite malignant forces, and he felt himself poised on the brink of self-awareness that could not have been without the litany's magic. Words from the Orange Catholic Bible rang through his memory. What senses do we lack that we cannot see or hear another world all around us? Juana's favorite passage, remember? Which, uh, unintended by the person who gave him the Bible, was bookmarked for Paul, right? There's rock all around. Jessica said. Another awesome moment of Jessica saying something which connects directly to what Paul is thinking but doesn't, she has no idea. Um, okay. Um, his own awareness. Um, he is alive despite malignant forces. There's a sense in which he's almost thinking, again, he's just thinking of the litany. They just survived the storm in which he was reciting the litany. So there's a sense in which he himself is thinking of the storm, the storm symbolically, right? Like the storm, you know, the storm is like a symbol of the malignant forces that have tried to kill him, right? But he's also poised on the brink of self-awareness recognizing that the litany has brought him to that self-awareness. Remember, he talked about the things which contributed to that ticking time bomb, right, that he was describing in, at the end of Chapter 1. Um, his Bene Gesserit training is one of the chief things that he points to there. Um, so again, he talks about the magic of the litany and how it brings him towards this self-awareness. We get that now combined with that random passage, and that random passage from the Orange Catholic Bible. What senses do we lack that we cannot see or hear another world all around us? Paul does not 
lack those senses, right? He now seems to be one of the only ones <clears throat> who in fact has the senses and can detect another world all around us. Note the way that that functions within, or rather the way that these, that these sort of symbolic moments feed into that, right? We as readers are being invited to see and hear another world all around them, right? The storm is not just a storm. It is a storm, but it's also these other things, right? Um, whether it be simply a symbol, like a symbol of the malignant forces that are, that are, that are working against him, or whether it be a symbol of other, you know, a symbol of like the terrible purpose that is that is bringing him along, and which may bring him to his own destruction, and in whose path no one can survive. Um, uh, but you know, again, we're we're invited to to think of all these things, and again, remember, it was his Bene Gesserit training, and it was. Um, uh, it was, and the, the exposure to the Orange Catholic Bible at a critical point, remember that was another one of the things that he pointed to as one of those crucial elements which contributed to uh, bringing him to this, this, uh, this awareness. Um, and then the response, as if it were a response. What senses do we lack that we cannot see or hear another world all around us? There's rock all around, Jessica said. Um, She's, of course, referring to rock as a good thing, right? Um, that is, rock will keep them safe from the worms. They need to land near rock or else they're going to be eaten by a sandworm, right? So um, rock, uh, for in, in Jessica's literal statement here, rock means safety. Um, but, uh, but again, what sense do we like that we cannot see or hear another world all around us? And again, we're, you know, the way that that invites us to understand her... Um, statement in a different sense, right? They're now in the desert, the Fremen Desert, as Paul has already called it. Um, you know, do we understand that there's rock all around in a different sense? You know, are the Fremen going to be the rock upon which Paul is going to establish his, um, uh, his, you know, his, his, you know, career, his future, his, lots of ways, lots of ways in which we can understand these things. Again, I, I you know, uh, James Stevens says you know, the Fremen live in another world. Yeah, I mean, again, to me, my, uh, my experience of reading Dune is this, this, this constant sense of, like, synapses firing in all these ways. I have a hard time even putting it all together. There's so much. There's so many different ways in which we can understand each thing. Um, uh, and then... Um, um, one more, one more passage. And he paused, shaken by the remembered high-relief imagery of a prescient vision he had experienced on Caliban. He had seen this desert, but the set of the vision had been subtly different, like an optical image that had disappeared into his consciousness, been absorbed by memory, and now failed of perfect registry when projected onto the real scene. The vision appeared to have shifted and approached him from a different angle while he remained motionless. Idaho was with us in the vision, he remembered, but now Idaho is dead. Do you see a way to go? Jessica asked, mistaking his hesitation. No, he said, but we'll go anyway. Again, Jessica, do you see a way to go? Uh, it's like, can you think of something more portentous to say, please, Jessica? Um, um, Nancy says, this is a weird and difficult image. I agree, Nancy. I find a lot of the... the when the narrator is attempting to describe the experience of what Paul's vision is like. This, I think, is a, a great example of that. I, too, have a hard time following it. Um, the business about 
the image disappearing and being absorbed by memory and then failing of perfect registry when projected onto the real scene. It doesn't, I mean, again, it's, I understand what it's saying, but it's hard for me to really get, you know, the, the kind of metaphors that he uses kind of shift about a little bit. It's, 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 it's indistinct. Um, on the one hand, we're talking about the projection of an image. Uh, you know, we, we have an optical image and its projection um, as it's, you know, it's projection onto the optic nerve, you know, perhaps, but then we have it being projected outward onto a real scene and not lining up. Um, but then we have the vision appeared to have shifted, which it doesn't seem to be like, it's not like the projected image is shifted, so we're not literally continuing that same metaphor, I don't think, um, and approaching him from a different angle. Now we're clearly in a different metaphor, you know, uh, right, Nancy? I mean... Um, it's the the projected image is going to approach you, um, uh, so I you know. I, but again, I think um, to me, I've never felt these kinds of indistinctness in moments like this. I've never felt them as a real blemish in the story because again, I feel like what is the 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 very contra the, the very contradictoriness. Is there a word for that? the state of being contradictory. Am I, am I overlooking the obvious? Anyway, the very contradictoriness of the, the sort of metaphors used to describe this stuff seem to me to convey the fact that what he's experiencing is really far beyond normal human experience. Um, if, you can com um, uh, if you can compare it, if we could latch onto it with something with like a simple visual image that we can easily picture, it must be wrong because what Paul is perceiving is something which is not like the way we normally uh, uh, perceive things. So I think that seems to me a, a sort of unnecessary. If, if, uh, if, if it were less um, if it were less weird and confusing, um, I, I think it would be less successful in that way. Um, anyway, um, you see a way to go? No, but we'll go anyway. Um, the last thing I would say, to revert momentarily, very briefly, to my earlier rant, the stuff that I've been trying to point to here tonight is exactly the kind of stuff that you lose when you start allegorizing. The minute you start looking at the story and thinking, okay, uh, it's talking about, you know, he's talking about the Arabs, or he's talking about the Middle East, or he's talking about oil, or he's talking about Islam. Um, the minute you start going there, you stop paying attention to these other things. And to me, the strength of this book is in its marvelous evocativeness and suggestiveness, the way that it invites us to be thinking and connecting and, 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 and putting all these things together, um, it points in so many different ways at the same time. And it does that, I think, really powerfully and, uh, and, uh, and really effectively. And allegorical reading is always reductionist always reductionist, sometimes really crudely reductionist. Um, and I hate to see that happen to a, a story like this, as I hate to see it happen to a story like The Lord of the Rings. Um, you know, the more rich and complex 
uh, and evocative a story, the more I hate to see it reduced um, by, uh, you know, a, a kind of a, a, a clumsy, um, you know, a reading which just strips it of all of that interest and just says it's about the atomic bomb. Um, you know, it's about uh, the oil crisis. Uh, something, you know. Um, so, anyway, that's uh, just to sort of explain a little bit more why, uh, again, although, as I said, not denying the parallels, not, not uh, you know, nothing like that. Those things all work. They're part of the, they're part of the grid. They're part of the matrix that Herbert uses to make this book as suggestive as it is. Um, but, uh, but I want to think about it in those terms. I want to follow the rich suggestiveness of the story rather than just squeezing it into what I think is a pretty small and pathetic little can. Um, and again, that's, that, that, that's to me what an allegorical reading of it does. So anyway, hence, <laughs> hence the fervor of my rant uh, earlier tonight, and I hope some, uh, some of these passages that I wanted to look at from book two uh, help to sort of illustrate the reason that I find that kind of reading frustrating, especially of this book. All right, thank you guys for your patience. Uh, off we go uh, to continue into uh, book two and in Paul's meeting uh, with... Um, with the Fremen, so uh, we'll be interested to see what kind of uh, uh, nexuses, nexi, nex, nexi? Is that the plural of nexus? I don't think I've ever... Nexus is just not a noun you see pluralized very often. Let's, let's, let's call it nexi, anyway. Anyway, let us see what decision nexi Paul uh, passes through uh, next, next time. So anyway, Thanks, everybody. Good night. See you next week. And don't forget, don't forget about uh, the um, MythMoot presentations. Submit a paper uh, if, you, uh, if you possibly can make it. I encourage you to give it a try and, uh, and uh, present a paper. So thanks. Good night, everybody. <laughs>